Welcome to our SM58 Day interview podcast. Michael, what are we, we going to call this one? Podcast work for me. Podcast is good. Excellent. We are going to have a little chat, basically, about the SM58, the microphone that we have been producing for a very long time now. And I am extremely um, lucky to be joined by, uh, again, by Michael. Michael, would you like to just introduce yourself and, and say what you do for the company? Hi, Jack. Absolutely. My name is Michael Pedersen. I am the Sure Historian, and I have the I have the wonderful opportunity to basically do research into our history, write stories about it, do podcasts about it. Uh, best job in the world. So that's what I do. Okay, so let's look back then, further in history, then from this point to get to the SM58. Where, what year do we have to look at? Where do we have to be before you know we can start to see this product in in the portfolio? Um. I mean, you know, the 58s are Unidyne 3, right? So really, you go back to 1939 for the Unidyne 1, the Elvis mic, 1951 for the Unidyne 2, the small Elvis mic, and 1959 for the Unidyne 3, which is the element that's inside the SM58. So you can really think about the SM58's uh, parent, if you will, in 1959, the Model 545 brought out then. Uh, advertises the world's smallest cardioid microphone at the, at the time. And uh, it goes back to then. So the 50, SM58 came out in 1966. So there was a period of seven years there where we didn't have the SM58. Got to look at early 1960s. Sure was not a major player in recording studios or TV studios or radio studios. At the time, Electric Voice was a major player AKG was a major player and RCA was a major player. So Mr. Schur said, I want some of that business. And he, there was a guy working at Schur named Bob Carr. And Bob Carr was an engineer by training, but he wanted to get into marketing. And Mr. Schur said, okay, Bob, your job is to get Schur microphones into studios. Uh, but you don't have much of a budget to do that. <laughs> <laughs> We've all heard that, heard that before. So Bob came up with the idea of, first of all, he did some interviewing of radio and TV and recording studios. And they heard things like the mics can't be shiny because they reflect light. You can't have on off switches on them because people might turn them off when they're on TV. They have to be low impedance. And Bob learned all these things about what a studio microphone had to be. So he took microphones from the standard line, sure already existed, like the 545 and so forth. And basically had them painted dark gray and took the switches off and so forth. So he modified products that we already had. And, right. Yes. And he called them the and they and they called them the SM line, the studio microphone line. That's what that's what it was. So really, if you take a look at the original SM lineup of microphones, there's only one mic in there that was really original, and that was the SM5, the big predecessor to the SM7. All the other microphones were existing models that we simply repainted, reconnectorized, and took switches off. And then the first catalog comes out in 1967. Well, if you look at the first catalog for the SM58 page, and you look at the page of the SM58, and then you look at the first ad that came out with it, it's all about trying to sell it to television stations. It doesn't say anything about rock and roll, live PA, nothing like that. You know, low handling noise when you're doing your interviews. Uh, you know, low wind noise when you're outside doing interviews. And so... We weren't trying to push it at all to that to that market because we were a little bit unaware of the rock and roll market. I wouldn't say unaware, but no one was paying a great deal of attention to it. In 1967, there was a very big 
pop fest, out, outdoor pop fest called Monterey Pop. It happened in California. And everybody was there. Uh, the Stones were there to see the concerts. They didn't actually appear. But the birds and the mamas and the papas and Jimi Hendrix made his first big appearance there. Well, fortunately for sure, all the microphones on that stage, front line and back line, were the Shure SM56, which was the predecessor to the SM57. And that was the first time that all these major headliners had a Shure microphone shoved in front of them. Or I should say had a Shure SM microphone shoved in front of them. And Monterey Pop was so successful that the bands took notice of that. Other uh, rental houses took notice of that and so forth. And so all of a sudden, this like Shure underground so I said, oh, yeah, man, these Shure SM microphones are really great for rock and roll. And we we're going along, Ooh, do, 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 do. let's go over here and try to sell it to radio and TV, you know. And, and then, then there's this buildup of people wanting to use our microphones for sound reinforcement. Uh, so by the time 1970 comes around, uh, you know, and we're again, we're making lots of money off of hi-fi, right? Yeah. yeah. So the vice president of sales look, talks, brings in Bob Carr and says, Bob, this whole SM line, it's not, it's, it's not working. Nothing's selling, you know. <laughs> to get it in the bin. Right. Let's, let's get rid of it. Right. Exactly. And then there was a meeting held sometime in 1970 uh, to get rid of the entire SM line because it was draining resources. And my God, we can buy, you know, look, we, we, we're bringing out the V15 Type 2 and we're going to sell hundreds of thousands of those. Why are we paying attention to microphones? It just doesn't make any sense. A guy named Roger Ponto, who's the guy that hired me, I mentioned him before was the national sales manager. And he was in that meeting and he said to Ray, well, we've already got these microphones. Before we get rid of all of them, let's maybe see if they work for something else. I've got some contacts in Las Vegas. Las Vegas has got lots of showrooms, which are now starting to bring in rock and roll acts. Let's bring the SM microphones out to Las Vegas and see if they work well for live sound. Guess what? <laughs> And that was that. Well, I mean, that wasn't the only thing, but there was all these forces that were coming about. And so really, I think it took us almost till 19, I have to check, 1973 or 1974. That's how long it took us before we actually sold a thousand SM58s in one year. Wow. And then what happened? Was it after that it started to take off momentum, Bill? Was it a very strong Build or yeah, it it's gradual around build? around around seventy six. It started to take off, and then eventually we hit our millionth SM fifty eight around nineteen ninety six. So about thirty years it took us before we got to our millionth SM fifty eight. So yeah, so it, it you know it was we're so you know the first ten years pretty slow, uh, then it started to take it off around seventy six and started to build up because you know bands started. Touring more bigger venues, more mics on stage, lots of different things like that, and lots of variations on it. So, yeah, I mean, looking back now, it's such a huge hit for us. But believe me, it was a slow starter. So I want to talk a bit about why this is such a go-to still. I mean, this is an old technology, right? It's It's been around for a very long time. But lots of changes. What? We've made lots of changes to it, though. We just don't advertise uh -huh. those changes. Yeah, we can talk about okay. that. Okay. Well, what about the SM58s that we've got? Because you and I have both got 58s that we're recording yep. this on now. Yep. Um, I think yours is a bit of a classic. Yeah, it's a little over 50 years old, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about those changes very quickly. What is going to be different to your 50-year-old 58 versus the one that I've got here now? Well, first of all, you pulled it out and you didn't even give it a second thought that it was going to work, right? 
Didn't even, you, you, you just basically plugged it in. It's I been, haven't it, even tested. I haven't even listened back. That's, that's part of it. Durability and reliability. We just take it for granted. I pulled out this 50 year old SM58 and I didn't even give it a second thought that it wasn't going to work. So, so let's talk about mine versus yours. Um, some variations. First of all, mine was dual low impedance. It had a 38-ohm tap and a 150-ohm tap. Going way back in audio, low impedance actually was around 50 ohms at one time. Medium impedance was 150 ohms. And then high impedance was what we think about today, you know, 15,000 ohms. Uh, and that low 38-ohm um, standard, 38 to 50 ohm, was used in broadcast. Remember, this was an SM mic, right? I have course, yeah. Right. And the idea was that 38 or 50 ohm microphone could go directly into the input fader on a mixing console. So that's why we had dual low impedance. And you actually had to take the XLR connector out and change a connection on the XLR connector on the base of the mic to change it from 38 to 150 ohms. Mine's set to 150 ohms. So that's one thing we don't do anymore. It's not dual low impedance anymore. What drove that? Sorry, just to, just to interrupt you. Why don't we do that anymore? What's what's changed? Is it just because because gain got very cheap. Gain originally was expensive, you know, tubes and so forth. And then as transistors yeah, yeah. and integrated circuits came in, gain got really, really, really cheap, and so you didn't have to deal with it anymore. So low impedance now we think about it as 150 or 200 ohms. That was medium at one time. So we got rid of that dual low impedance transform. Uh, second thing in mind that's a little bit different is that the paint job is different. On yours is probably just a solid gray color on the handle, right? Yeah. Right. Mine, mine's two-tone. It's got a solid gray color on the handle and then spattered on it like someone took uh, some paint in their mouth and spit it out are little, bla little black spots. So it was like a two-tone type of uh, paint. And I can't remember exactly when we got rid of that, but that's in the 1960s. So if you find an old microphone that's has kind of this two-tone paint dark gray and then it's like little black spots on it that's an older one as well uh logo is different of course you know uh, the label is different and the really early ones this one doesn't have it but the really early ones at the xlr connector at the bottom of the handle uh where the xlr is all of a sudden the diameter of the handle stepped down for about a quarter of an inch it was much smaller and that was just a that was just a feature for styling we got rid of that eventually because that was a, was not necessary and it was an additional tooling cost to make that. So mine doesn't have that. But internally, you know, we've made lots of changes. We just don't tell people about those changes. Um, the Unidyne 3 element was patented and that, or patented, as you say. Uh, uh, and But that, that patent expired around 1980. So if you don't patent things, you don't have to tell anybody what you're doing. They're called trade secrets. So there are variations. You know, we, we use different adhesives. We know, use laser welding now. There's been all kinds of material changes inside and improvements, but we simply don't tell the world because no reason to. And if you tell the world, then your competitors perhaps learn how to improve their microphones. But more importantly, now you tip off counterfeiters. Mm, of course, that's something we'll get onto in a bit, actually. We'll, we'll come to counterfeit stuff. I want to get under the hood a little bit now of, of these microphones. We've said that these are flagship. We've said that the rock and roll community really took it on. The live music community really took it on. What about this microphone? What's going on here that makes it good for live music performance and studio recording? Why does it keep going out there in, in millions and millions of years? I think, there's, I think there's lots of reasons for it. No, number one, 
let's just talk about, I always like to, to reference the SF-58 to Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola years ago got the taste right. They got the shape of the bottle right. They got something that appealed to a lot of different people. So sometimes you just happen to get it right. So what's right about the 58? And this, and this is just my personal opinion. First of all, it just feels right in your hand. It's the right weight. It's the right balance. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I'm not an ergonomics type of person, but it just feels right. It's like a Coca-Cola bottle in your hand. It just feels right. right. So you got that. It's got very good rejection of handling noise. Does a really good job with game before feedback on stage. And in the 60s and the 70s, when bigger venues were coming out and they were really trying to squeeze every bit of game before feedback out of the system, way before line arrays and so forth, all that stuff helped. Because just the amount of history that's actually in there and the amount of sure DNA that's in there. But I want to talk now about the SM58 today. So we, we mentioned earlier that it's not the one that we used to build. Um, and obviously, th this is actually manufactured in, in Juarez, isn't it, in, in Mexico? Right. And, and, I, and I believe, I think we have a line set up in the Shuzhou as well. Um, so, so is it still the same? You have to keep your lines. It still uses the Uniphase acoustical network. It still uses the Unidyne 3 basic patent. But there's, there are changes, and the changes are primarily material changes. Better plastics, better adhesives, um, better acoustical material, and so forth. The concept is the same, but the, the uh, actual materials have improved. And as a matter of fact, the reliability has improved as well. Brilliant. Well, I'm very sadly, we're coming to the end of our time, but oh. I, I, want, I desperately, desperately want to talk to you about Frank Sinatra. Am I allowed? Can <laughs> oh, we yes, discuss yes, Frank? Yeah. yeah, he's passed <laughs> away now. <laughs> um, what, I mean, I, I seem to know that there are a couple of Frank Sinatra SM58 stories around there. Mm. I, I believe there's one from that, very that, early that was there, yes. Yeah. So Sinatra uh, has been really, was a fairly loyal, sure user his entire career, going, all, going back to the 1940s, using Unidyne 1, Unidyne 2, and so forth. He used a lot of different microphones. And in the 70s, you know, wireless microphones were not that prominent in the 70s. They just weren't reliable enough. And so he was a wired SM58 user for quite a few years and very, very loyal to it. So we brought out a microphone called an SM59, which most people don't even know about. And it was a dynamic microphone, kind of a modernistic, very 70s look, uh, flat response, kind of a low output level, good handling noise characteristics on it, by the way. And so we brought it out in 1977. I'm brand new at Sure. I'm not even there for a year. And my boss, Roger Ponto, says, you're going to be help me introduce the SM59 to the sound guys in Las Vegas. And you and I are going out to Las Vegas. And we've got the SM59, and we're showing it to different sound guys around there. And, you know, they're, they're being polite, and it's an interesting microphone. So Roger says to me one day, well, Sinatra's over at Caesar's Palace. He's rehearsing this afternoon. Take the SM59 over to Caesar's Palace. Talk to Dave Rogers. He was the sound man for Caesar's Palace. And he'll talk to Sinatra's sound man, because Sinatra had his own guy, and get him to try the SM59 for the uh, rehearsals. You know, okay, boss. You know, I'm I'm wet I'm, I'm wet, wet behind the ears. I don't know really easy as that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know enough about microphones to be a make a decision on this type of stuff. So I go over there. Dave Rogers, friend of sure, sees the microphone. Ah, this is great. Yeah, I says you stay up here in the sound booth, which is about a hundred feet away from the stage, and I'll take it to the Sinatra sound guy on stage, and he'll use it for rehearsals, and we'll see how it goes. 
So I'm up in the sound booth. Dave trots down to the stage, talk to the sound man. I see a real animated conversation, you know, like that. And he's lots of shaking of heads and so forth. And so, so eventually yeah. the sound man, <clears throat> and this is all from afar, kind of shrugs his shoulders and takes the 59 from Dave, goes over to where the stand the SM58 is, replaces the SM58 with the SM59. And that's it. Dave comes back up to the sound booth and says, Sinatra's going to try it. This is going to be great. Sinatra <laughs> eventually comes out of the, you know, out from there, says hi to the band. He's always joking around with the band. And he notices that the SM58 is not on the mic stand. And it's immediately not happy. And he, and he says, and I'll, I'll clean this up for your audience. He says to, <laughs> he's, he says to the sound man, where's my friendly SM58? It wasn't F word. It wasn't friendly. <laughs> less syllables. Yeah, less syllables. And the sound man says, uh, Frank, this is a new mic from Sure. They want you to try it out. Would you mind? The Sinatra kind of goes, mm, yeah, okay. Anyway, so he would always, his opening song was always come fly with me, which will make sense in just a second. <laughs> and he sings about eight bars and he takes the SM59 off the stand and Throws it with all his might, stage left, bounces along the stage, boom, 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 hits the wall <laughs> and yells at his sound man, get me my friendly SM58. Sound man runs over, picks up the SM59, unplugs it, plugs it in the 59, puts it back on the stand. Sinatra's happy now. Rehearsal goes on. I'm in the sound booth, like white as a sheet, you know, and, and Dave is looking at me like, no, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so they finally reach a point where the sound man comes up to the sound booth, finds me, hands me the SM59, and very quietly says, he didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I tore out of there as fast as I possibly could, um, all the way thinking about what am I going to tell my boss? So that was my one and only uh, encounter with uh, up close and personal with Mr. Sinatra from 100 feet away. <laughs> Well, I think on that note, uh, Michael, we'll, we'll end this session there. So thank you so much for your time today. Really, really oh, appreciate oh, it. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Jack. Always a pleasure. Likewise. And we'll, we'll do another one of these again very, very soon. Okay. Sure.